Good morning, church. So wonderful to be with you. I was just sitting there thinking, especially through announcements and other things. There are so many things I love about Monty, but one of the things that I appreciate about him is he's one of the few people on the planet that makes me sound like a slow talker. Just, <laughs> love you, man. <laughs> I do so much appreciate this church. I know I say this, but uh, there, there are weeks like this past week, I just can't tell you how many different ways both in large events or in small moments, even seeing some people at work, that I've seen members of this church love people who do not yet know Jesus. I, I just, I love that about this church. You love Jesus well, but you love and honor and welcome people who do not yet know Jesus. And I've seen that again in, in gatherings, even in the, in the funeral that, that we did to honor Bob yesterday. Um, and, and, I, and I've seen that uh, in your individual workplaces, but also I just want to celebrate your incredible generosity that we, we are continuing to receive things for Mission Sunday, but in the most recent uh, figure that I heard is something like $86,000 that you have given uh, to, to bring the gospel message around here and around the world, and over $2,000 from our maker's market with our kids. So I thank God for the heart of this church to, be, to care about people other than just those, the folks that are in this room. And you do that in countless numbers of ways. So I celebrate. Thank you for that. Uh, we're continuing our series we've been doing. We've got two weeks left just doing an overview of the book of Exodus, and, and we just came into this story to say, God, can you give us a picture of the way you walk with people into the great adventure you invite us into in your world? A great adventure, that, that's an image we're using for God's purpose in the world. You see that everywhere, but you know, I think of Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1, where God tells us that, that he is in Christ restoring and renewing all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. He's bringing the brokenness back together. And part of that brokenness is my own heart and our hearts and lives. But then he takes broken and being restored people and puts them in the adventure of restoring the world. I just think that's powerful. So we've been looking about what, what does that look like as God has walked with the people of Israel into his great adventure in the world. And so we're coming to a text that is, is not the happiest story in uh, this epic. It's in Exodus uh, chapter 32. Uh, it's, a, it's a chunk of text. Again, I'll skip through a couple things here, but let's hear this and see if God might uh, awaken some things in us, but also about what uh, God's heart is like. Uh, this story picks up as Moses has been for 40 days up on the top of Mount Sinai, receiving, as we said a few weeks ago, don't think of the Ten Commandments as speed limits and stop signs. He's receiving, as you'll see, the handwritten wedding vows of a covenant relationship with our God. And here's what's happening, unfortunately, in the midst of that story. It's the word of the Lord, Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who's brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. And so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the Lord rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And after they sat down to eat and drink and to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. Skip down to verse 9. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them, and then I'll make you a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. Verse 14, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, and they were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. In this next section, they come down the hill and Joshua hears the sound of what he thinks is war and battle. And Moses says, that's not the war and that's not battle. And so he engages Aaron in verse 22. Aaron says, do not be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has gold jewelry, take it off. And they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) And perhaps the darkest part of the story, Moses then commands the servants who will later serve in the temple, the Levites, and he has them put on a sword and kill 3,000 of the Israelites. Verse 30, the last section, the next day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin. But now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They themselves have made gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of the book. Now go lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish... I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I suspect there are any number of circumstances in your life that will remind you of this reality of human beings, but I've found it true that we don't wait very well. (laughs) Whether it's uh, waiting in traffic or waiting in line or waiting in some way or another for some promise to come through, we don't, as human beings, tend to wait very well. Perhaps some of you saw a, a post that went viral about a year ago. It was a comedian of all things in South America, and he was talking about an otherwise just routine day, and he was going through a drive-through at McDonald's. 
And apparently he took a little too long in giving them his order for the lady who was in the car right behind him. Because <laughs> while he's trying to give his order, she starts laying on the horn and she's yelling and making all sorts of hand gestures that wouldn't be very appropriate in church. And she's letting him know in every possible way, you're taking too long. So he pulls forward to the first window and he goes to pay and he asks the cashier what she ordered behind him and he pays for her meal too. Uh, the article that I saw I was talking about this uh, said that when he posted it, telling this story, he put a little uh, emoji with a halo. <laughs> so he blesses her by paying for her meal. And as he's pulling forward, he noticed that she kind of leans out of her window in absolute shock that he would respond with kindness to the way that she was acting in the car behind him. And in fact, he said she wouldn't even look at me in the rearview mirror. She was so embarrassed and full of shame. Now, up to this point, it sounds like one of those great pay-it-forward stories, but he goes to the last window uh, to pick up his food, and he shares the receipts that he used to pay for it, and he said, give me all the food. <laughs> he took hers, too. <laughs> this is his line. I just love this. He said, I paid for it. It's mine. Now she has to go around again and wait even longer. <laughs> now, let me be clear. This is not the Jesus move, okay, here. <laughs> but I do think it shows us a little bit about what goes on in the human heart. We have a hard time waiting for anything it is that we want or we hope for or we prepared for. And in this moment, in this tragic story, the people of God do some horrible things because they have a hard time waiting on the promise of God. It's been 40 days that Moses is up on top of the mountain speaking face to face to God. As the text makes clear, God is handwriting his vows of the covenant. Do not call them Ten Commands. We said a couple of weeks ago they're called the Ten Words in Scripture. These are the words of God's covenant vows and relationship to his people. And while he's writing his wedding vows, the people of God are on the base of the mountain prostituting themselves before other gods. They don't wait well. And I wonder if there's something in this tragic and, and difficult story. If it's not difficult for you, I don't know if you, if you read it well. It's a difficult story. Is there something that we can hold the mirror up to ourselves and learn something about ourselves that God works with and also something of the nature of our God in the text? Well, the first thing I want to say is in, difficult, in, in addition to it, uh, us having a hard time waiting, it's a hard time that we as human beings have on keeping centered on what is most central. And I love the way Calvin puts it, and there have been a lot of quotes since. Here's a great way to think about it. The human heart is an idol factory. <laughs> the human heart is an idol factory. We, in our fallen and broken nature, tend to take... What is idolatry all about? We tend to take things that were intended to be gifts, and we pull them to the center of our being and our identity. Hear this, idolatry is not about making little statues. I used to read these texts and think, oh, isn't it great? We don't deal with any of that. No, no, no. It's not about that. Idolatry is about taking not bad things. This is so important. We take good things. We take things that were intended as gifts from God, and we take them, and instead of receiving them as gifts, we pull them to the center of our being and our identity and our security. 
And here, there's a lot of things I don't understand about this story, but one thing that becomes very, very clear is that when we take anything other than God to define our being in the center of who we are, it destroys us and it hurts other people. And God wants us to see that and experience that very clearly. When we take things that God has given us, any human created thing, and we put it at the center of our being, it destroys us and it hurts other people. And again, I think what's helpful to me is I, I come across uh, Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, and he talks about the problem of idolatry. And again, it's so easy for us to think, oh, that was a problem they had back then. And he said, no, we can make anything into an idol. And he lists, put it up there if you would. This will be helpful for our reflection. These are eight common things that we take that were intended to be gifts of God. But we make idols out of them when we define our identity and our safety and our security by them. In fact, part of what's powerful about the way he talks about it, we'll just go through this quickly. He talks about what you see in the story, not just these particular ones. And I encourage you, by the way, let me be really clear to say this is not an attempt to beat you up. If you are in Christ, you are free and you are his. But we grow up when we say, God, would you do the Psalm 139 thing? Search me and see if there's anything broken in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So just for a moment, I want to invite you to say, is there is there anything, let the Holy Spirit tell you, is there anything that kind of competes for allegiance with God with you? All of us have them. So join the crowd if you struggle. But what's helpful with what Keller does, and we'll just do this really quickly, he talks about when we do this, the damage that it causes. So let me just kind of go through this quickly. And again, this is not for guilt. This is for self-awareness. He said, when the first one, when you take a spouse or significant other and make them the center of who you are, he said, the problem is you will become jealous and controlling and their problems will overwhelm you because we're putting something that wasn't supposed to be that important, even a spouse and significant other. It's a gift of God, but we put it at the center and all of a sudden it controls us. Secondly, family and children are a gift of God and we are intended to pour our lives into them, but not to make them the center of our lives. And he says, when we do that, here's the problem, here's the danger and believe me, I coached football for a long time and I saw all sorts of crazy parents. And here's what happened. They tried to live their lives through their kids. And when you do that, you create resentment in them, bitterness in them, or you totally evaporate their own sense of self. By the way, Keller is so wise that he points out here, this is where sometimes, sometimes abuse comes from this. When someone has so made a child the center of their identity and they don't live up to their picture of what they want them to be, they will take that out in violent ways. That's part of the danger of the idolatry of this particular gift. The third one, we can make work and career the center of our identity. And the problem, he says, is then if you do that, you become a driven workaholic. And I love this insight. We become boring, shallow people. Because <laughs> all we're doing is checking off tasks and boxes. And there's no depth to who we are. And we lose friends. And then if you fail in that effort, it leads to depression. Do you see the damage that comes when you take a gift and make it more than it is? What about money and possessions? If you make money and possessions the idol of your life, the center of your life, you will be eaten up by worry or jealousy over other people that have more. And you may even end up doing unethical things in order to keep a lifestyle. And in the process, you'll blow up your life and others. Fifth, well, sometimes we put our identity in pleasure and comfort. 
And he said, if you make pleasure or comfort the center of your life, you will end up being addicted to something. There'll be something. You'll be chained to an escape strategy that tries to help you avoid the difficulties of life. That's insight. Doesn't mean don't enjoy things. But if you make that the center of your life, it will destroy you and hurt others. This one I think is so powerful. Number seven, just watch the news. If you make a noble cause, whatever that noble cause is, some ideology, the center of your existence, listen to this. He said, what will happen is you will end up dividing the world into good groups and bad groups, whether they fit into your ideology, and you will demonize your opponents. And listen to this. Ironically, you will end up being controlled by your enemies because your only purpose for existence is to oppose them. Is that not the news? And then the last one, so important for us to recognize in a church gathering. Sometimes religious activity and morality can end up being the idol of our hearts. He says, what's the problem with that? Listen, if you, if you make your religious ideals and goals and you're living out whatever your picture of what God wants for you, the center, instead of God doing it, if you make that the center, one of two things will be true. Either you think you're living up to it And he says, in which case you will become proud and offensive and judgmental of other people. Or you think you are not living up to it and you will walk around in shackles of guilt. Does any of this sound familiar? Now hear me. God is telling us here yet again, our hearts are idle factories. And he's not saying that to beat us up. He's saying to liberate us from it. And God doesn't say, go burn all these things. They're evil, awful things. No, get the picture. I'm trying to do this visual here. God says, I tended to give them to you as gifts. So pull them out of the center of your being and hold them as the gifts they're intended to be as we look to the giver of the gift. Do you see that? The only way to healthily relate to the gifts that we have and the people we have in our lives is with a proper, healthy distance. Does that make sense? And so this first part of the story gives us a difficult picture of human beings. We are, Aaron says, prone to worship idols. By the way, here in almost every story, when when God kind of addresses idolatry directly, there is this weird comical twist in it. It's a tragic comedy. And you heard it, didn't you? You get to the part of the story, Aaron's like saying, look, we just threw some earrings in there, and and then this cow jumped out. (laughs) And we're intended to laugh a little bit, but we're laughing and we're grieving at the same time because part of what the story is telling us, it is ridiculous to take created things and pull it to the center of our created being. It doesn't work that way. Now, if you're like me, I come to this part and and the human picture in the story is difficult enough. But if you read it closely, and maybe you don't have this problem, but I just want to own this. I've been wrestling with this text for a month, and for years before that, but really for a month. Because for me, far more difficult than the picture of human beings in the story, to be honest with you, is the picture of God. Can I just own the fact this is a hard text? In fact, you have some people in your lives, and maybe some people in here, who have this picture of the Old Testament angry mean God and then he gets grace in the New Testament and we've talked about throughout that story already we've seen that's not true but I'm telling you this is a hard story 
Let me just tell you for me a couple of things that are difficult about it. Starting in verse 10, first of all, God allows Moses to look like the rational one in the story. Did you kind of catch that? He's almost letting Moses play the role of the one who's keeping it all together. And God says to him in verse 10, let me alone, let my anger burn hot on these people so I'll destroy them and I'll start over with you. And Moses talks him back into sanity. That's what it feels like. Now we know that's not true at the same time. What's going on here? Moses has to come up to him and it's a, it's a kind of crazy conversation. Hold on, God, what are the Egyptians going to say? You led them out powerfully, and then you went and destroyed them. And oh, by the way, remember, as if God would forget, remember the promise you made to Abraham. What do you do with this? And if that's not difficult enough, I don't know about you, but I honestly, I can tell you the moment, I wrestle with this. I wrestle with this. I sat at my desk a month ago. I was reading this text, and I got tears in my eyes. I'm like, what are you doing, God? commanding the Levites to strap on a sword and it says, go kill your brother and your sister and your neighbor and they killed 3,000 of them. What is going on? And if we quickly and easily dismiss that, that's part of the problem when people are wrestling with faith because they think we turn our brains off. And I just want to put it out there and say, this is hard. And I don't know about you, but for me, part of what helps me is when I come to this text, I, I see it, can we say it this way, as a permission to be puzzled. <laughs> can I say that part of when we come to these difficult passages, is it okay to kind of just for a moment say, God, this is hard stuff. And everything in me, I kept reading commentary after commentary, rabbi after rabbi, because I wanted to be able to come here and wrap it all up in a nice neat bow. And I'm telling you now, if you want that, you're going to be sorely disappointed. I don't have an easy answer for this. In fact, some of it, I won't give an answer at all. I will reflect on some things that come out of this, but I'm going to start with two things that I found helpful in my journey with God up until this point when I come across passages like this. The first one I would say is, sometimes, is it enough for us when we come across a difficult passage or maybe a difficult way that we see God working in our lives and we just let, let ourselves sit in the tension? Just sit in the tension. Maybe we don't always have to resolve it. Maybe it would be a powerful witness to the world around us to say, sometimes we don't know. And I'm telling you, I'm trying to model this as a preacher because God would not let me wrap it up. So here's what I've got for you. I don't know. And I struggle and I wrestle and I'm in tears saying, I literally prayed to God, Holy Spirit, what are you doing here? Because I don't get it. And I've read the, the articles and I can give you cheap, cliched answers, but it doesn't work for me. This is hard. I know I might have said these words before, but you'll hear me say this a lot. One of my teachers, one of the greatest gifts he gave me, he said, sometimes when you come to Scripture, it is one more opportunity to bow before the mystery of God. I think about a passage in the New Testament. Maybe you've heard this one before. If you haven't, Jesus had just fed probably upwards of around 10,000 people miraculously. And then a bunch of folks wanted a second meal. So they come up to him in John chapter 6. And then Jesus turns up the heat a little bit. And he says to all of them, unless you eat my flesh or drink my blood, you have no part in me. And it says a bunch of the crowds left. And they said, and I quote, this is a hard teaching 
Who can accept it? And Jesus turned to the inner core of his disciples, people like you, and he said, are you going to leave too? And I love this language. He said, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Where are we going to go? By the way, if you asked any one of them to explain what Jesus just said in the moment, I guarantee they had no idea. But they said, we've seen enough of you to this point to know that you are a life giver and we can't go anywhere else. That's where I've come in this text. God, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I can't explain it to the church. But where am I going to go? I come back to you. Because you have always been the life giver to me. And perhaps for me, that's the second thing to do that's maybe even more helpful. I remember being taught this years ago as a child about a principle for reading text, and I come to it even more deeply today. Here's a suggestion. When you come across difficult passages in the Bible, I invite you to read them through the lenses of the passages that are not so difficult. When you come across images of God that are difficult to see, oh, don't dismiss them and don't run away from them, but read them through the lens of the passages that we do know. Here's the way I would say it. Do you know the God that we worship here and that we see here and we are astounded by here is the same God who said those words that have now become famous and you put them on billboards. John 3.16, it's the same God. And what did he say there? God so loved the world that he gave his son, so that whoever trusts in him will not what? Perish, but have eternal life. I don't understand what's going on here, but I do know the God that I worship in Christ is a life-giving God, and he wants to destroy no one. And he's so passionate about giving people life, even when they are broken and rebellious, that he will give the life of his son before he destroys them. Perhaps he says, I will punish, I will punish when I get around to it. And when he gets around to it, he gets around to it in Christ. That's not a cheap getaway. I don't know totally what to do with this, but here's what I come to. Even when I do not understand this God, I do trust him at least in my better moments. I do trust him because I've seen enough of him. And maybe sometimes he invites us to say, when you don't get it and you don't understand it, wrestle with it and hold that. But trust the God of the story even when you don't get the story. Oh, this is such a silly example of this. But I want to give you a taste of this. Look at Sean because we experience this almost every week. And, and Monty, like, there's several of us that, and, and after our ministers' meetings, we, we go to lunch together at different places in town. And, and often the ladies aren't, aren't uh, you know, brave enough to go with us. So it's just our guys going out doing crazy stuff. And, and here's the thing that happens when Kelly picks the place. This is kind of my little joke. I don't know where you are, Kelly. When Kelly picks the place, we go to weird places. I'm just being honest, right? You know, Kelly's lived around the world. We go to places on a regular basis. When Kelly's in charge, I can't read the menu. I don't understand what's going on. And we make jokes about this, don't we? And there was one week, a couple weeks ago, and, and we drove by the Mongolian Cafe, which turns out it's a little more comprehensible than I thought. But I'm like, if Kelly were with us, we would go there. But we're going to the burger joint. And we did. <laughs> the next week, Kelly was with us. Guess where we went? The Mongolian Cafe. <laughs> Now, I joke about it and we laugh, and, I, and here's one of the reasons I can laugh and have fun with Kelly, because here's what I know. I don't understand half of what this guy eats, but you know what? And I mean this with all my heart. I trust Kelly Davidson. I trust him with my life. 
And you know what? We always make jokes about it, but I, I, I do. And then when we come out, I always say, every time you've taken me somewhere, I have delighted in it, except for durian. I, everything else, I enjoyed it. Why? Because I know Kelly will never, ever lead me to a place that isn't something good for me. And if that's true with a wonderful but imperfect human being, how much more so with a God who gives his life for us? I don't get it. I don't understand it. And he loves me enough to say, let me hear it. He'll take your grief and your lament and your questions. At the end of the day, though, I trust this God. And so maybe it's enough in a story like this just to say, I'm going to give you permission just to scratch your head a little bit, but I'm still with this God. So quickly, maybe a couple of thoughts coming out of this. So here's the thing that, that maybe what is going on is you get a picture of a God who in his grace bends down to relate to and to speak with his people. We worship a God who bends down. He stoops down for us. Even though God is royalty, he is the king of the universe, sometimes we have these stories that maybe what's going on is not God revealing God as God is actually, but he's stepping down into a conversation with us. What does that mean? I think one of the great quotes from Christian history comes from John Calvin. It's old language, so bear with me here, but you'll get the picture. I think this is powerful. I think offer it to you, maybe wrong. I think this may be what's going on here. Calvin was writing at a time to people that were reading these, fancy word of Lord, anthropomorphic texts. In other words, these passages where God is used with metaphors of human beings. God leading his people with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And some people would read that and say, oh, God has hands. No, God is spirit. Jesus has hands, but God doesn't. And it would say all sorts of things like this. I think it applies to a text like this, where God seems to be as kind of volatile and reactionary as human beings are. It seems like that. What's going on? Here's what Calvin says. And by the way, he wasn't always nice to people that were opponents of his. So, you know, let's look past the first couple of words. But he said, who is so devoid of intellect? Okay, not a nice way to challenge your critics. Who is so devoid of intellect as to not understand, to get the image, that God in so speaking lisps with us as nurses are prone to do with little children? What's he saying? Translation. Sometimes God talks baby talk to us. Not because he doesn't have a powerful vocabulary, but because he stoops down to talk to us in ways we can understand. Such modes of expression, therefore, do not so much express what kind of being God is as they do merely accommodate the knowledge of God to our feebleness. It says in the book of Mark, Jesus spoke to them in parables as much as they could understand. It means a lot he didn't say. And in so doing, he must, of course, stoop far below his proper height. Isn't that a powerful image? We worship a God who's willing to bend down and speak to us on a level that we can understand. And maybe that's what's going on with Moses here. It's not, hear me, I, I do know this. God doesn't have to be convinced to be gracious. God doesn't have to be reminded of his covenant promises. It is impossible, the Bible says, for God to lie. He will never break his promise. So what is God doing? Maybe it isn't for us to understand God. Maybe it is for God to work on Moses. 
When God called Moses to be a deliverer and intercessor for his people, Moses thought the best thing he could do at the beginning of that was kill Egyptians. So maybe God is actually training Moses in this conversation to be the kind of mediator he created him to be. And isn't that powerful? And for the first time ever, when I read this text, I thought, hold on, a couple weeks ago, didn't we say that Moses isn't the only intercessor? Do you remember God's calling of the entire nation of Israel? They're called to be a kingdom of priests. And what do priests do? They stand in the gap. And maybe in this wrestling conversation where the heart of Moses stands up and fights for people that don't deserve it, maybe God said, by the way, that's not just Moses' job. That's your job. Not there yet. That's Moses' job. That's your job. You are called to be people that are willing to wrestle for and to fight for those who are on the outside and don't understand me. We are created to be ones who stand in that gap. And yes, Moses does that. And so, yes, yeah, so we, we, we can go there. Now, here, here's the thought. When I see this picture of Moses, it's not a perfect one, but the entire story is like crying out for some mediator to step into this weird story. And I promise to you, anytime I read the Old Testament, the first thing I want to say is, God said something to them back there, so I want to hear what it says to them first. I don't want to rush to Jesus, but man, you can't help in this story to run to Jesus, right? Because Moses tries. He does a pretty good job, right? God, remember your covenant, remember your name, all of that. But here's the chilling words to me that cry out for a better mediator. Moses did as good as he could, but as well as he could. What does it say in verse 30? Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps. And I don't know about you, but I look at my heart. I know Moses can't do it. I look at brokenness in this world. I know Moses cannot make atonement for the brokenness in this world. And I'm crying out for somebody who will. You ready for one of the greatest declarations in all of Scripture? 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is a mediator. There is someone who can perfectly fulfill that. And there is no perhaps to it. He has and did and will make atonement for the people of God who are willing to trust him more than the idols that they will fashion of him. Don't you love Jesus? And as I cried over this text, because a text like this will even condemn my heart at times, I said, God, what are you doing with this? I don't know. I can't answer it all, but I run to Jesus because he is the one who is the atoning, mediating sacrifice for the sins of us and the entire broken world. We run to him with open arms. I remember when I was in your situation some years ago, I was a college student. I remember when I went to college, I came there with an idea of friendship that honestly was pretty superficial. When I was in high school, my friendships were not as rich as you all have here. My friendships were based on silly, superficial, shallow things. Sports and music, and that's fine. It was cool, but there wasn't depth to it. And then I came to this thing called a college ministry. And there were many, but I remember one in particular, a guy named Ed. And we connected on all those other ways too. But oh man, we connected on the depths of following this guy, Jesus. Not perfectly broken, but that was part of the pursuit. 
And we would work out together and we played sports together and we, we would challenge each other with our grades. Yeah, we were geeky about that. We did all that stuff. But he was in a discipleship group with me. We shared spiritual leadership together. He held me in accountability. And I'll never forget when we graduated, he graduated before I did, he gave me a gift. I still have it. Uh, right before graduation, our church building burned down there. And there were very few things that were salvaged in it, but one of them was a book that came out of the library. And he knew, I just love the passion of Paul, and I loved his vision to bring in people. And so he pulled out this book that was in the fire on the writings of the Apostle Paul. He gave it to me, and you could see the singes around the edges. And he wrote something inside of it, and I'll never forget it. He said, Dean Barham, you are in my soul, and I would die for you. 20 years old. I still wonder, I've never actually followed him, I thanked him for it, but I never came back and said, well, really, did you really mean that? And as incredible as his friendship here is, one thing that I know is that he is imperfect and limited. If, if nothing else, even if he would be willing to do that, that was the last time we ever lived in the same city. And so distance alone makes him an imperfect mediator for me. But here's what he did do for me and still does today. He points me to the one who didn't just say, I would die for you, he said, I did die for you. I gave it all for you. So that whatever condemnation you might hear or feel when you come across a text like this, you know the end of the story is God giving his life so that you wouldn't lose yours. And I don't know about you. I can't figure him out and I don't understand him. But I love a God like and Father God, that is our praise to you. First, we confess we do not understand you. Great is the Lord, the psalmist says, and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. We cannot understand you. You are delightful mystery. And yet we love you and we trust you and we ask you to help us in all of those places and ways. We forget and call us back to your heart. How can we ever thank you enough, Lord, Savior, Messiah, friend, Jesus Christ? Father, we ask you to help us to be not only the broken people who are redeemed by you, but people who are willing to stand in that gap for others, because we have a world in need of a mediator and a Savior. Thank you for being that for us. In the glorious, resurrected name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.